Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Andy Consen and Nick Dravonovich, uh, who together make up the two gray beards. So welcome, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Thank Mike. You. Yeah. And for those of you who are following on, on video, we do have the full gray beards on, on full display here. So real treat uh, to be joined by the two of you here. And it's very timely. Um, and I and I actually want to, I know, Andy, you and I talked not not so long ago, but I want to return to some of the themes that we touched on in our previous conversation, but actually really refer to a note that you put out back on July 10th, where you talked about the acts of a play that might make up uh, an approach to recession island. And, you know, you indicated sort of act one of that play being the higher for longer camp, but act two was uh, compression in term premia and a sell-off on the longer end of the curve. And the supply part of that picture would be really important. And I feel like that's what we're starting to see play out today. So if you could maybe just go over sort of the the thrust of that note and just talk about what's going on in the bond market today to start. Sure. You know, I think there's been a lot of confusion regarding this particular cycle. Um, we have a relatively normal inflationary cycle that is causing high nominal GDP growth and the Fed is doing what it typically does, which is hike interest rates. Um, and the question is, how does one end a inflationary cycle? Um, you, the cycles that most of us have been familiar with since, um, you know, since we didn't have gray beards 40 years ago are ones in which uh, a credit event occurs in which some levered party that is systemic um, breaks apart and you have a financial instability. It's also in the backdrop of 40 years of globalization, which has been a headwind to any sudden rise in inflation. And so most of us are not familiar with that type of environment. Uh, and in that type of environment, there's an ordering that has to happen for inflation to uh, be killed. These other ones were not inflationary. And so the Fed could easily cut rates as soon as there was a credit event. And this is just different. So what I mean by that is that what has to happen eventually is that there has to be significant demand destruction to kill inflation. And that demand destruction typically comes from two places. One is the wealth effect. Um, people are less wealthy. Um, they have less assets that they can either borrow against or sell to um, spend. Um, and then the other impact is that once demand begins to be destroyed, co corporations look at their earnings and see that they are seeing less top-line revenue, unit revenue, um, and they start realizing they need fewer workers. And those fewer workers... Um, the, the fired workers no longer can spend as much and those workers spending is somebody else's income and you have this cascading redu reduction in demand. And that's a typical business cycle action. And so the question is, you know, what has to happen to get there? And that's what the script was about. 
And the script started with the Fed hiking interest rates, which they've done um, and are most likely at or near done. Their goal was to ultimately hit long-term interest rates high enough so that that would have a wealth effect because people's bond portfolios would uh, suffer and also a interest impact on um, those consumers that are still borrowing on the long end of the curve. And so that's what typically happens. They raise interest rates and then the back end follows in a, what's called a bear steepening. Um, the problem in this environment, and principally due to the fact that Janet Yellen was uh, capped with a debt ceiling and then chose to issue bills in the summertime, was there was also a lack of bond selling, bond supply. And so I predicted uh, in that note that the next act, Act 1, was the lifting of short-term interest rates. The next act would be a um, supply catalyst that would result in a long-term bond yield rise. And that's what we had on 731 when the quarterly refunding announcement was made, um, and a large supply of bonds for the fourth quarter. And so the last two months have seen bond yields, long-term bond yields rise 70 to 90 basis points across the curve. They rallied a little bit today, but you know that was on a different issue. Um, but that supply has generated some sell-off in equities because now bonds are much higher yield, and so they are more attractive. And Act 3, we think, is in the midst of commencing, and that's where bond yields stay high, long-term bond yields stay high because of the large supply, and equity prices correct relative to bonds. Uh, that combination of things, the losses in bonds this quarter and the losses in equities, whenever that happens, if it happens, will hurt the wealth effect, which will hurt demand. And then Act 4 is the one I described in which um, demand results in firings, results in a negative non-farm payroll print, increasing unemployment rate. And that's how you get the cascading down of both earnings, multiples, um, and asset prices broadly, uh, which at some point turns into a recession, inflation dies, and the Fed can then uh, cut rates again. I'd love to dive in a little bit more and describe this this supply issue that you that you've highlighted. So for a long time, right, there just weren't many um, uh, weren't many market participants that were coming to market that needed debt, right? So what we didn't have was a clearing price of debt on the long end of the curve, um, and so. Part of that was actually on the corporate side. So post the explosion of Silicon Valley Bank, there weren't a whole lot of banks that wanted to lend and corporates that wanted to borrow. Obviously, that was going to need to change at some point. And then there hadn't been a large auction of treasuries since, I believe, uh, Q1 of 22. And that changed with the QRA, which is what you mentioned. So that's what you talk about. That's what you mean when you're talking about supply coming to market, right? And now we're finding out where the clearing price is for longer dated debt. Is that a good summary? Also, what we have to figure out is who is the buyer of these bonds? Because the banks aren't buying, they don't need the duration. If anything, they need to take duration off their balance sheet, and they've been doing so for the past several quarters. I mean, that was the problem with um, Silicon Valley Bank, too much duration on their balance sheet. Uh, so the regional banks and, I, I guess, 
JP Morgan as well, because let's face it, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon keeps on telling us that rates are going higher. So I can't imagine that he's a big buyer of duration. Um, so what we need to find out is who this marginal buyer of all this extra issuance by the Treasury is going to be. Because don't forget, this is not a this is not something that's just for this quarter. This is something that is going to get potentially worse next quarter and the quarter after that and the quarter after that. So it, we are not talking about one little supply shock, rates readjust, 50 basis points, 70 basis points, whatever you like to <clears throat> think is appropriate. But then it keeps on coming and it rains harder and harder. So what we need to find out is who is going to be the marginal buyer. So if you go back in time, you know, I now I'm going to date myself. Back in the 80s when the deficit exploded, we were all worried who was going to be the marginal buyer then. And the marginal buyer turned out to be the Japanese. Uh, plus growth did, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting in the 80s. But that was a different period. Growing at 4 5% uh, in real terms was not difficult. Now I think it's extremely difficult. So are the Japanese going to buy? No, because bond yields are just aren't, if you swap out into yen, uh, it actually pays a Japanese retail investor to still stick with JGBs. So we can forget about them. Is it going to be Europe? I don't know. I mean, the same thing applies. They, they've got no pickup. Why would they buy U.S. debt if there isn't a significant pickup to you know, swap back into euros? I mean, if you want to take a flyer on the exchange rate, you can. But I don't think that these guys, that's not what they are there for. They're retail investors. They don't think in dollars. They think in euros. So they're not receiving a great pickup. So the question is then, who is going to buy? And the real ultimate buy, the, the answer, the only answer that I can come up with, and maybe Andy's got a better one or someone else does, is that it's got to be the US retail buyer. So whether that is our 401ks or it's someone who says, wow, I'm getting so much real in terms of uh, return, why would I stick with equities? I'll sell some equities and buy some bonds. Uh, it has to be a mixture of, of that. Either yields go quite a, little, quite a bit higher, which at the moment I'm tempted to say they shouldn't, but wait until the next QRA and we will find out what the real supply is for the next quarter, and then we could have a real shock. We could. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's up to Janet, Janet Yellen. Uh, so th that's the problem the bond market has. And don't forget that every time we've had a disinversion of the curve, that has led to recession. So the recession indicator was never the inversion of the curve. The recession indicator was the disinversion of the curve. Um, is it going to happen again? Well, it's always happened. Could it be different this time? I think the odds are slight, but I don't think it's imminent. That's the difference that between Andy and myself at the moment. 
I think there are so many other cross currents in equities that it's going to keep the equity market bid for certainly this month, I feel. I mean, yeah, we, don't disagree. we don't truly disagree on that. My, my view is that you don't get a recession until equities roll over. So if they don't roll over, we don't get a recession. And then the Fed is going to have to go back and hike some more. Yeah, I I think the um, you know we've had a whole load of um, speeches by you know by the uh, Fed governors about how the fact the term premium has gone out. I mean, how how have bond yields gone up? So it, they've gone up so because term premium has finally turned positive after many many quarters of being negative, and the bond market has stopped fighting the Fed. Yeah, Nick and I talked about that briefly about the who the buyer is going to be. <clears throat> Nick, in his chair, and me in my chair, look at real yields and say two and a half percent on ten-year real yields are very attractive, actually, as a as a long-term investment. Um, you know, you maintain your purchasing power for the whole time, and you earn two and a half percent on your on your savings. That's uh, very very attractive. And high relative to history, not the highest, but high relative to history. But the problem is that, you know, guys like us and the rest of the investing public doesn't buy on leverage. We're buying bonds to as part of our cash. We're extending our cash into bonds. And it really takes some doing for us to offset big chunks of supply. And you can see that because, so what you need either is a levered buyer like the Fed, like the uh, Chinese um, um, central bank, like banks that can create money and buy the bonds to meet this chunky supply. Um, guys like us are, you know, sure we could make some portfolio shifts, but if Nick sells some equities to buy some bonds. Somebody else has got to buy those equities and sell some bonds, right? So there's just no, there's just no money that gets created in that process. So as Nick mentioned, in the 80s, we saw large growth and that created large savings pools, which created the ability for the U.S. citizen to finance ourselves. But it takes time and the chunkiness is can have big impacts, as we've seen in the last few months, on to get to the new clearing price where, you know, there are enough of us that are unlevered to meet the, the large chunk of supply. And that happens often when there's chunk, you know, one big chunk of supply will come to market um, in a quarter. But as Nick mentioned, the outlook for the U.S. government, particularly when the Fed is reducing its balance sheet, by $720 billion a year, um, the deficit is increasing, and they have to pay back the Fed. The, the issuance is going to continue to be very chunky for the foreseeable future. And so it takes a lot of people saying, I want to take my cash off the sidelines and put it in long-term bonds. Um, they will eventually, but it does take time. And so the question will be over the next year is what is the true clue, um, um, clearing price for all of this issuance? 
And that is why I think we are actually stabilizing at these yield levels because the real yield is attractive enough for people like me to dip their toe in and say, well, this is really good. Let's see, you know, does it hold? Does it not hold? And I think it probably will hold for the time being. And we are just waiting for the next QRA. Uh, and that comes in a month's time. So if Janet tells me that she's going to add another 200 billion of issuance on top of what she's already told us that we're going to get, I'm going to get the hell out. You know, it, it's, it, I think it's as simple as that. We hold levels while we can, and when we no longer can because we just know or we're being told that there's going to be such a deluge of issuance, then we back up and real yields will have to rise again. That is the time when the equity market could be in trouble. I don't think it's going to be in, in the next three, six weeks. Yeah, I call it an, I call it an intermission between the two, Act, act 2 and Act 3. And, and, you know, we're all at the bar having a few drinks and enjoying the little rally. <laughs> but we'll see. So I, I have a question for you guys. I've, I've started to see headlines, you know, the Fed is losing control of the long end of the curve. And I would love to get a sense from, from the two of you, you know, with, with the gray beards and uh, little gray hair. I mean, how, how accurate is that? Do you think there's a lot of concern emanating from the Fed? I, I, saw actually, I think it's actually quite the opposite. I think, I think the Fed is getting exactly what they want. First, they, they've, they've gotten uh, rates higher. And now they're beginning to get term premium higher. And if you listen, if you read, um, I think it was Logan's speech today, she's very, and Tim Rose wrote an article on it. She's very clear that one of the mechanisms that they count on, in fact, the QT mechanism itself is specifically designed to increase term premiums and to slow the economy. So I think they're, I happen to think they're completely in control. What I think is out of control is, in a period of relative prosperity since COVID, we're still running one and a half trillion dollar deficits. That's out of control, but that's Congress and the presidency, not the Fed, who is just sitting there saying, I got this dual mandate. There's no problems on labor. I'm just going to keep pressing. And, you know, first I'm going to lift rates and then hopefully term premiums going to expand on the back of that. And they're, they're getting exactly what they want. Yes, absolutely. And, and now they're hoping that this higher long-term rate, when it comes time for a lot of corporates to refinance and so on, uh, or for people to buy homes with mortgages, is going to dampen the demand or dampen the price. Uh, are they going to be successful? Uh, eventually, for sure. Is this enough? Who, who knows? But the Fed is absolutely happy with what is going on. You know, there's no doubt about that. I mean, they're you know they're they're cheering. They they want what they would not like now is for the long bond to rally like twenty thirty basis points. Then they would get worried. Right. Uh, what is the long bond saying? Why is it going down in yield and up in price? Are we going to get recession? They'd be asking themselves a lot of questions. While the long bond just trades up here at these yields around 5%, I think they're perfectly happy and perfectly in control. 
What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. You mentioned Janet Yellen as being in the in the driver's seat there. And I love just just to call out, I'll, we'll link this note in the show notes, but I thought it was a, there was a great explanation of how the drawdown of the TGA was neutralizing some of the early effects of uh, QT as well. Yeah. So the mechanism for um, quantitative tightening is that the Fed can either choose to sell bonds in the market to reduce their balance sheet or let existing bonds run off, mean mature, and get paid back by the U.S. Treasury. In England, the BOE sells bonds in the marketplace. But in the United States and in Europe, um, they let bonds mature. And so if you do that, the person that decides who to issue, what to issue to pay you your money back owns the QT lever. And for instance, if they used a T-bill to repay the Fed, there's very, very deep demand for T-bills. But if they raise that same dollar with 30-year bonds, there's significantly less demand because those are much riskier securities. And so the mix, the composition of issuance is what matters. And um, in the first half of this year, the debt ceiling prevented issuance of any sort. So bond issuance was quite low. Bills issuance was quite low. There was nothing Janet could do in that case. She spent the TGA, because she, which is her checking account, um, because she had the money from prior borrowings. Um, and that supported spending in the real economy and savings in the real economy and that, thus market prices. But the big deal is nothing was being issued to offset that um, spend. Then she decided after the debt ceiling was announced to fund the rebuild of the TGA back up to where it was using bills almost exclusively and only sold about $178 billion of bonds in Q3. And so that left, you know, $178 billion of bonds is a lot of bonds, but uh, in the scheme of things, it's a lot less bonds than they've issued in many years. And so last quarter, you still had the tailwind of low amount of bond supply, keeping long-term yields low and equity prices bid. And what happened in in the QRA and um, bless you, QRA in um, in August, as they said, uh, instead of 178 billion in Q3, we're going to do 338 billion in Q4, and that was just enormous. That's like that's a, just a big number. And so around Halloween, we'll get the next report, and we'll see if that's more than 338 billion or less than 338 billion. But that choice, that lever is Janet Yellen's. Yeah, I 
I actually think that the uh, the bond vigilantes will come out uh, if she does something foolish, like takes the ratio of bills to bonds to an extreme, because they um, the Treasury basically doesn't like to surprise the market, and they always try to keep the composition between bills and bonds at around 15 to 20%, the ratio. So at the moment, it's 22%. If they want to keep that constant, I don't think the bond vigilantes would mind at all. Uh, you know, a couple of percent here or there is not going to be the problem. But if now she goes and issues a lot less bonds, that will be a signal to the market that she's actually worried. And you never want to tell the bond market that you're worried because the bond market will run you over eventually. Now, the first round effect will be that the bond market will actually rally because, you know, less issuance, you know, less duration to absorb. But it'll look for any excuse to absolutely smash the market. Um, I mean, what? It's just delayed. It's just delayed issuance. If she ends up issuing a lot of bills instead of bonds, which is what Nick's talking about, and increases the percentage from twenty-two percent to something higher, um, it just means that they'll have to issue later, and you know the market will know that. So it's going to be a very tricky line, and I think she'll probably do her level best to avoid making a big um, a big shift. And that big shift, without if she avoids making a big shift, that means that bond issuance is going to go up in Q1 and you're going to have that supply pressure. It's a tough place she's in. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't fancy her job. I mean, these, um, it, it's very hard to know what to do best, but I would have thought the way to keep the bond market happy is actually to go and have a look at the other side, and that is the deficit, and try to do something about that. But that's a political issue. Um, I don't think Janet Yellen can do very much about it. But she, I'm sure she's telling anyone who will listen that unless you want a very nasty surprise in 2024 during a presidential election year, something like bond yields spiking to six and the housing market going, you know, bye-bye, um, you know, it, it's something that they have to start addressing or at least tell us how they're going to address it in future. Because at the moment, we see absolutely no end in sight. Right. So the question which that brings up is, you know, what's driving this spending? You have infrastructure-related, uh, ironically named Inflation Reduction Acts. You have uh, CHIPS bills. You know, we're going we're to, I imagine, talk a little bit about what's going on, on in Gaza but you could have some interruption in energy supplies globally if that thing escalates out of control, um, which you know will result in spending on domestic energy. Each of these things is spending now to save, to get inflation lower in the future, potentially, if it works. Um, but it's inflationary now, and, and it increases the budget deficit. So it's a... It's, um, you know, there's no political will from either party to reduce the budget deficit. They both have ways that they would choose to do it, Democrats by raising taxes and Republicans by cutting 
uh, expenditures, but the deficit grows, just keeps growing. Yeah. I, I would love to get your your perspective on that. Uh, Andy, we talked a little bit about this on the last show that we did, but the longer term of just like the immediate, not the next immediate three to six months and how we're going to get through this this upcoming supply, but on a longer, more zoomed out horizon. And I know that this conversation has been been had for a very long time. There's about you guys were probably trading markets at that point, but I've gone back and read about, you know, Market Wizards is a, is a great book that I love to go back to. And even back then, there were concerns from the more sort of hawkish, maybe more conservative participants in the market. We're going to turn into a debtor nation, yada, yada. You know, this is, this is 40 years ago. True. Um, obviously, it's continued for much longer than we all thought. Maybe it could continue for another 50. But I mean, it feels concerning to me that it seems like it's rising in an extremely rapid fashion. And I think the the broader historical context of other issuers of their, of reserve currencies in the past, or even just nation states and how they sort of evolve and the, the troubles that they run into, usually debt is at least a part of the picture. So I, I would love to get an understanding of how you look at it, even on a very zoomed out basis, and how sustainable is this this issuance? This idea of debt capacity is really not a, a debt capacity issue. It's a trade-off, meaning if you're going to have a lot of future dollar bills for the same amount of production, well, assuming production grows rough, real production, what we all can make, goods and services, stuff. If that production grows at 2-3% because that's what our population is doing and we get a little better working each year, but really we, we're growing at 1% population, so there are more of us, and we work a little bit faster and better, that's great. Maybe it generates 2% more output a year. And future dollars are growing at 5 6 7%. What that just means is that you divide all, all you have to do to determine price of anything is you divide all of the production by all of to provide all of the dollars by all of the production. And you end up with price. And so if your dollars are being increased quicker than your production is being increased, prices go up. And that's what inflation is. And so when you think about this idea, are we burdening our future with debt? Maybe, but really what we're burdening our future with is inflation. And so that's the thing that I think is um, a hidden tax on our future. It's not like we're going to somehow default. It's just our future dollars are going to buy less stuff. Yeah, precisely. That's, um, you know, and, and that is why real rates are rising. That's why they're so positive. And the question is, does someone do something about the deficit? Because if not, and whatever short-term tricks they might try, like, you know, sort of issue more bills, you know, issue less duration and so on, Longer term, that's not going to make any difference because longer term, it all has to add up. And all it means is that the U.S. starts becoming a little bit like a, I won't say exactly like because I can't really make that comparison in good faith, but it come, becomes a little bit like a developing market, um, you know, uh, 
in, in terms of bonds with, with a lot of bond volatility. Now, bond volatility, during times of bond volatility, you, what do you get? You get a very high term premium because you need to compensate holders for that volatility. So, and what does higher term premium mean? It means higher real rates. You know, so eventually the market will get to a position where it just dampens all activity and then we get that recession. But it's probably going to take quite a long time. And we need to be also convinced that the politicians are going to do nothing about it. Now, you're talking very long term, right? We're not talking about the next six months. So unless, let's say, the next president or the next Congress decide, yeah, everything's rosy, we're going we're gonna to keep on going along this path, then we are really in, in trouble. Because if there's no political will to fix the current budget deficit, then we are on that path of higher term premium because of higher bond volatility, because of higher inflation volatility and higher real rates. And let me, let me pose you a question. If, uh, why would you prefer to lend money to the US for 10 years at, I don't know, um, what, what, what are rates that just below five, right? 480 or Q8? at seven and a half. Why would you prefer to give the money to the US? Well, the, the usual argument is, oh, safety, it's so safe. Uh, and they can print them, right? Well, Kuwait can print them. It can just sell more oil, right? And oil is traded in dollars. So effectively, it's printing them. And we all know that the great big army that the US has is there to pr protect Kuwait. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll take the seven and a half percent, without a doubt. The uh, you know the ass you 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 mentioned a hard asset that we can all understand, but that hard asset of a of what is it eleven or fourteen aircraft carriers, that hard asset of two Atlantic an Atlantic Ocean and a Pacific Ocean on each side of our borders, that hard asset of all of the most navigable riverways in on the planet friendly neighbors on both borders um there's a you know a structural asset value to the united states that's valuable we're really talking we're not talking about end of the world type stuff like that we're just saying i think that uh budget deficits result in future inflation um cutting your budget deficit results in short-term, below-trend growth. And the trick is that to take the pain of austerity, you have to have a, polit a, pol a political will that can say, you know, I'm going to spend my four years as president in a recession. And congressmen who think they are, who get elected every two years, thinking they're going to get reelected, um, in a recession. So it's, um, you know, that, that political reality is part of our problem. I do want to talk a little bit about inflation and I want to return to this, this sort of progression of we haven't, we barely talked about the stock market at all, but I, I do. And, and before I bring this up, I think when we talk about, uh, contemporary geopolitical events, the, the situation that's going on in Gaza, I think the only response right from a humanitarian perspective is 
just one of you know sadness and empathy, especially for the everyone that's impacted over there, especially the the horrible attacks that are going on in Israel. But this is not a, a politics sort of podcast, right? But it does impact markets. Um, and whenever there's you know something like this that happens, you know a potential war, it does introduce uncertainty. And you know you, I'm sure the two of you definitely know the the series of events that this could take. But some of the things that I think about would be oil, uh, the price of oil just a general uncertainty in markets and a potential flight to safety, which might be why long bonds are catching a bit of a bid today. So I'd, I'd be curious just how how all of you see this playing out in the hopefully very unlikely event that the conflict over in Gaza continues. Right. So I think it's a pretty big deal. Um, and I'm not a geopolitical expert. I'm not even a hobbyist. In fact, I basically say I don't know and I can't imagine being Spend, I've spent 100,000 hours following markets. And you know, during those 100,000 hours, I've learned a lot. But what I've learned is I can't possibly learn what's necessary to know to have any sort of edge in um, the occasional geopolitical situation that happens over the course of my career. So I would start with saying that's what this is. Uh, but I will also say this seems bigger a bigger deal than a random small incursion into the border. It seems like a big deal. And I think there's going to be a proportional response, which will be devastating because the proportional response may hurt citizens, uh, innocent people. Um, and so I think there's a decent chance that we have an escalation from what we know today to the future, in the future. And when that is, I'm not sure. And then the question is, you know, what other actors are brought into the conflict in whatever way they are? And again, I don't know. Um, you know, we've heard about Iran, but Iran has denied it. Um, I don't know. So for me, what that means as an as a investor is if you, don't, if you know that something has changed that is going to increase uncertainty, you have only one job, and that is to reduce your risk. Even if the uncertainty appear like last last night the playbook was buy two year notes sell stocks buy oil those three trades were the thing to do based on the assumption that this is just the beginning of a potentially bad situation um equities ended up being up on the day why is that because everyone knows that playbook and it isn't clear that so you you go into an event and you have the right position, say your short stocks and long two-year notes. You still are things, your own uncertainty has increased, as has every market participant. And so your job is to degross, to shrink your position. Yeah, absolutely. The um the playbook today was followed for a few hours and then it diverged. But the really what 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 moved were the um and and that's what what i anticipated it, it was the defense stocks that jumped and kept on going higher and if you did a butterfly of the defense stocks against the spy and the qqqs you made you made one and a half two percent in two hours so the, the the stock market move today didn't surprise me very much at all uh the it, it's I have no idea what's going to happen in the Middle East, and I don't think, as Andy says, 
I don't think anybody should uh, trade on an outcome that they expect because odds are that he won't be anywhere near what they expect. Uh, it'll be something completely different. I think when you are in a situation like this, and I've been in it, unfortunately, many times, it, you just trade it. You keep on trading it for a few hours, and then you get out and you wait for the next event, and then you trade that event. You can't predict what's going to happen. It's extremely unlikely, you, unlikely that you're going to be correct in any case. So degrowth uh, have you know, smaller positions so you can have wider stops and trade it. Don't, don't be a hero. Your, your job is to survive this period and be able to trade when everything returns back to normal. And for our long-term investors at Two Greybeards, you know, we've been, um, this is the partnership Nick and I have, we've been um, telling our clients to uh, be defensively positioned for, since we started in uh, July, on January 1st, for just this sort of event, because this is the opportunity when things can diverge surprisingly, and you can begin to put some more cash to work. Um, if we were fully allocated to assets today, we would have turned out we would have had a good day. But the, the sleepless night that we would have had um, waiting for worse news over the weekend could have been enough so that we our clients forced themselves out of markets at the absolute worst time. So regardless, you know, I think the idea is, is to look at the future of the Gaza situation as another facet of risk in the marketplace and the risk in the marketplace went up slightly. And so you belong marginally more in cash. Yeah, exactly. All right. I, I'd like to, um, you know, maybe we can end on the the subject of long inflation. Andy, you and I talked about that quite a bit in our last interview, but I want to I want to translate this back to sort of this um, this outline that you described, which is the compression in equity multiple, uh, compression in earnings, and then finally uh, recession island. So I know you know maybe there's a little bit of a debate on the particular sequencing or the timing in between the two of you, but it sounds like both of you see that coming. So maybe we could accurately describe your position on the stock market as bearish for the for the current period of time. Uh, I mean, when, when do you start to see that sort of multiples compression and earning contraction kick in? And then where does that take us in terms of the SPY, uh, the, you know, S&P? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's unclear to me whether to be bullish or bearish today, um, particularly given the events over the weekend. Um, I'm leaning bearish, but I'm also bullish bonds which is, to me, working out fine um, after being extremely bearish bonds for many months. Um, they're okay now. And so that'll support the stock market at some basic level, too. So, you know, as Nick said, I think we're looking to Halloween where the next supply shock announcement comes out and make our decisions sort of from there in terms of making any big directional bets on markets. Um, but after that, um, this, you know, we, I think Nick and I 100% agree, maybe maybe 90% agree, but pretty strongly agree that it will take an equity sell-off to generate a recession, that a recession won't happen unless politics create austerity. Actually, the budget's going to pass eventually. And so 2024 will be locked up with a big deficit. 
relatively soon. And when that happens, the die is cast for you know relatively strong economy unless stock prices fall. So eventually stock prices fall and then you have the and that starts with as I said, starts with multiple contraction because bonds start looking attractive relative to stocks. This two and a half percent real yield looks attractive relative to stocks. And so stocks fall. And then um, the demand destruction that occurs from the wealth effect starts hitting earnings. So now let's talk about the calendar, which is, you know, it's a simple thing. When do earnings come out? Well, we get a whole rash starting in the middle of October and ending early November. And those are going to be great. You know, there's just no chance that those are going to be bad. The uh, GDP is running at 4%. Inflation is lower, but still 4%. You know, there's those those third quarter earnings are going to be juiced. Now, the question is, of course, how much is priced into markets? Um, and so we'll see if the juiced earnings are meet or exceed or uh, undershoot expectations, but they're going to be good. And so now you think, okay, when does that happen again? And you're out to f- late January, early February. And so without, with an absence of news, now again, the QRA could change things, but in an absence of news, it's hard to think that we're going to start seeing significant layoffs and big misses in earnings until February you know, late January, early February. And so that's the first time I really think that we have a chance of going to act four. Um, and I think that's about as early as it could possibly happen. And it may last till the following quarter, which would be late April, early May. Yeah. And we do have seasonality now. And, uh, also what we don't, probably won't have is a whole load of tax selling uh, in late December to knock the NASDAQ down like it happened like it happened last December. So those are all positives for the uh, for the stock market. And as Andy said, I think the QRA is going to be absolutely uh, absolutely key. But my indicator, what I look for is disinversion of the curve. I mean, if you think about it, why why would the curve disinvert? It can only disinvert in one of two ways. Um, 30-year yields go above two-year yields. That would absolutely stun me. Um, it, it, it would be the first time I've ever seen it going that way. Uh, and eventually that has to be, uh, that has to bring on a recession. And or, or the very least, multiple contraction, at the very least. I mean, imagine if two-year notes were yielding five and a quarter and um, 30-year bonds were yielding five and three quarters. Uh, that has to have an impact on the economy eventually. The other way is the normal way, i.e. two-year yields fall below 30s and keep on going. Uh, and there's only one reason why that would happen, and that is because the Fed is cutting rates. Why is the Fed cutting rates? Well, it's cutting rates because the economy is tanking. So it, it you know, it's a bit of a circular argument, but that's what I'm waiting for. We are at very interesting levels now in the 230s and the 210s. We've gone just about as far as we can go without the yield curve predicting a recession. 
very, very close to that line. And whenever I've seen it in the past, it's always worked. So I'm going to keep on believing in it. So maybe last question for the two of you as we wind down here. And Andy, I apologize. I know we talked about it last last time we spoke, but I would love to get your your outlook. And maybe Nick, I can I can pick on you here a little bit first. Is is your outlook on inflation? And maybe you could talk about that on either a cyclical or maybe a longer term secular sort of basis. But that seems, you know, in the in the case that we get the the bull steepener and the the Fed is cutting rates and that's what takes the twos, uh, you know, well below the thirties. Um, I I think that gets complicated by uh, stickier inflation than we otherwise would have expected. So I would just love to maybe get your your take on that uh, to end things. So I think it's pretty straightforward. We have um, excess money sloshing around the system um, that needs to be withdrawn, um, and that is a combination of the RRP uh, reverse repo program and excess bank excess bank reserves and. As long as that money is sloshing around, you're going to have relatively sticky inflation. Um, and that gets withdrawn through QT, and they have to do it for a couple more years before that fully pulls, gets pulled back to what is a normal level of, of, of liquidity in the marketplace. Uh, so that's just time, but it's a headwind for falling inflation. And then the other is uh, jobs. And jobs need to be cut, and you're only going to get cut jobs. Companies don't cut jobs until their stocks are down. And we need to see some stock performance, and then earnings come down before you start to see meaningful job destruction. But the the third and last point is um, I see no respite in the inflationary impact of budget deficits. And so – and in particular, spending on things that we technically don't need, like duplicate supply chains, domestic energy infrastructure, onshoring, deglobalization factors. And that's there seems to be there has been a cyclical shift from globalization, uh, the secular deglobalization, de-glo- uh, to a cycl- cyclical um, deglobalization. But if that turns secular, that will keep inflation sticky as well. Yeah, I I can but agree. I think all these uh, factors that Andy mentioned, especially especially these supply chains, which need to be... um, And when we've seen what's happening in in Israel at the moment, they need more, uh, more munitions. And believe me, they can make munitions. Ukraine needs munitions. Uh, the Europeans keep on saying they're running out of stocks. So everybody uh, needs to abandon, in a lot of industries, we need to abandon this just-in-time concept, and we need to build up stocks. The onshoring uh, is going to continue, and and while these supply chains are built in different parts, while we have this need for redundancy because our security is less than it used to be, it, I can't see how inflation can collapse. You know, it, the only way it could collapse is because the economy collapses and demand collapses. And then I can see inflation, you know, going below the Fed's 2% target because nobody's buying anything. But until that happens, and I don't think it's going to happen for a while, as 
we've been you know discussing, I can't see that it's going to go to the Fed's target any time but along the timetable that the Fed has predicted in its dot plots. So we're talking 2025, 2026 before we see inflation back down to 2%. And that is without events. You know, as always they used to say, dear boy, events, events. And you know, as we discussed earlier, we could wake up one day and we're at war with Iran and oil's 150, in which case inflation is not going to 2% anytime soon. So well, it's, it's very difficult to predict. All we can say with a higher degree of confidence is that inflation volatility is now higher than it used to be during the 2000s and 2010s. Inflation volatility will definitely be higher, and that means the term premium will keep on staying more elevated than was the case. Do you think the Fed ever changes their inflation target? Uh, not under Powell. Even if they did, they wouldn't tell us. Because if they did, they would be, they would be probably the most stupid thing that anyone's ever done. I mean, yeah, I, I can't imagine where the long, uh, the long bonds wouldn't even open. Guys, this has been uh, wonderfully instructive for me and, and a ton of fun. And the two of you uh, put out some great content, and we'll link that in the show notes. And I highly recommend, guys, you go check out, it's, I think, the most uh, criminally underwatched, actually, uh, financial content on, on YouTube. So definitely go go watch that. But also, there's a, a service that, that you, the two of you provide. So um, could you guys just talk a little bit about what the, the Two Gray Beards is and some of the work that you do for your clients? It goes back to my own experience. Uh, when uh, when I had sort of outside money managers, as it were, uh, you know, people like Merrill Lynch or whoever, you know, managing my managing my money, and I was just too busy trading and managing other people's money to look after my own money. And then, you know, sort of once every six months, they'd invite me for a wonderful lunch at their very very expensive offices. And show me returns that, okay, we're talking sort of early 90s here. So returns which were nothing stellar with risk that was higher than I thought needed to be for those returns. Uh, and basically cost me a lot. Those lunches, although they were free, were costing me tens of thousands of dollars. So I... I, I and I have my father-in-law keeps on asking me for advice for advice which he never follows, but I keep on giving him great levels. He's a gold bug, and I keep on giving him great levels where he should buy gold, and he doesn't listen. He doesn't wait. He's not patient. He just buys it at market. He loves gold, and he keeps on buying more. So my idea was that a lot of people have gone through my experience or my father-in-law's experience that they have no one to talk to or no one to trust. And when they go to see their wealth advisor or broker or whoever it is, because they're not from the industry, they get uh, tongue-tied or basically just run over with, uh, with terms they don't quite understand. So they don't really know how to argue back. And I thought that if we had two people who were knowledgeable about the market, but who could express these uh, market 
terms in everyday language and explain why uh, why certain assets should perform better at this time as opposed to any other time. And we did a real account where we do this every week and we switch money around whenever we think it's appropriate. Then if they wanted to discuss things with their wealth advisor, they would have the opportunity to do it on a much more informed basis. And I think that that is the key to our service. We do show them what, you know, in real time, what we do with our money. Uh, and they're welcome to follow it. And we show them the returns. So, you know, everything is transparent and they can see. But I think the biggest benefit that we bring is that we save people time. If you are a, someone who is, who has, a, a large account with a, an institution such as Goldman Sachs or, or Morgan Stanley or whoever, you are probably very busy, a very busy man. You're doing another job. And we promise to give you all the information you need in 20 minutes a week. So all you need to do is set aside 20 minutes, not listen to anything else, and we promise that you're going to have some very, very good information there and you will see how we act on the information that we provide, which I think is very valuable to people. Yeah. So our target group is the people that have one to $20 million in their um, savings that are underserved, delivering, you know, getting paying 1% of AUM per year to their financial advisor, which may be, you know, $10,000 to $200,000 a year. Um, to get stale financial advice that looks like a 60-40 portfolio or a, um, you know, a, um, a, a life plan. Um, and the idea is we want to arm you to have better conversations with your financial advisor because we know those conversations go badly and you don't compound your learning. And so you have your random conversation, you do some research, you forget it by the next time. Take 20 minutes a week, you'll have better conversations with your financial advisor. And we think that will end up ha having a portfolio that is is better for you. Yeah, guys, check them out. Um, Andy and Nick, you you two have been great, uh, taught me a lot. And uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. We'll have to do it again sometime. Thank soon. you. Thank you for having us. Cool. All right, guys.